Well, welcome to another edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and happy Thanksgiving to you. We are celebrating Thanksgiving Day here today because it's the fourth Thursday in the month of November. Uh, so today being November 23rd means that the first Thursday was November 2nd, so it's kind of early. I think next year, because of a leap year, it'll be later. But nonetheless, I mean, we kick off the holiday season in earnest, knowing that uh, there are a lot of people who will celebrate Thanksgiving for, I think, good reasons. Other people will celebrate it and say America's history is kind of checkered. I'm going to get into a full analysis, balance, and clarity uh, discussion at the bottom of the hour today. And then, of course, coming up at uh, the top of next hour, it's the National Crawford Roundtable podcast, Thanksgiving Day edition, which is always going to be a lot of fun, especially when you consider how spirited our conversation was last week. If you didn't catch all of NCR last week, uh, we were talking about a new poll out of the Center for Politics at, at Virginia University, I believe. And the discussion centered on a couple of statistics with regard to people who support Joe Biden, people who support Donald Trump, and whether they felt democracy was dead. We didn't really get into that whole issue because a surprising, lar surprisingly larger number of Trump supporters believe that we need to replace democracy with some other system. These are the same people, make America great again, just don't make it a democracy or a constitutional republic. Um, but the, the, do you believe in resorting to violence as a way of you know, expressing uh, your disdain for the other side? And both sides, about a third of Biden and Trump supporters believe that if you're a Biden supporter, they believe that Republicans are a threat to American democracy and violence should be the response. And if you're a Republican, about a third of Trump supporters believe that Democrats are a threat to democracy and violence is an acceptable, acceptable uh, reaction as well. And it's kind of a nuanced conversation. But in the second half hour, your know, first half hour airs here on the Bottom Line Show radio network. And the second half hour shows up in different places on, on the air. But it typically only shows up on... Um, on the podcast site. If you did not hear the second half hour of last week's National Crawford Roundtable podcast, Bob and Neil went mano y mano as to Bob's position that if more Christians who vote Democrat would vote Republican, America would be a better country, and Neil's position that if more Christians would just be Christians, and regardless of their uh, political affiliation, um, that, that we, we would be better off in terms of serving our creator. And, you know, it's interesting because both guys make very valid points. And so it's not, it, it's kind of like, the you know with the pro-life community for years has run into a big uh, buzzsaw in the pro-abortion community because a lot of people in the pro-abortion community don't believe that the pre-born child is a human being so uh, you have to be able to speak the same language and have the same currency in this case both guys made points that were very valid the question was which one was more you know i think uh more accurate. And, and quite frankly, on a biblical sense, I, th I give the nod to Neil over Bob only in that Bob was so passionate about that party's bad, this party's good, it can be better, let's make this party better. Whereas Neil was saying, hey, uh, we're Christians, we're called to go into all the world and not make Republicans or Democrats, but to make disciples. So nonetheless, and, and toward that end, that kind of leads into a Thanksgiving story here that I wanted to share with you because you may not be familiar with her name, but I was really drawn when I started to see writings a few years ago from a woman called Ayan Hirsi Ali. She was a visiting professor, I believe, at Harvard. And she was a Muslim who had been uh, kind of a leftist. And she discovered uh, the, the leftist side of the American political landscape was uh, leaving her in kind of a, an awkward place. And so she started speaking out against American leftism and feminism and things of that nature. But she, uh, she had been in the Muslim tradition as well, and I thought it was very interesting, kind of a clear-thinking Muslim. Um, but then she moved from being Islamic to an atheist. So when I came across the headline recently that she had become a born-again Christian, I was fascinated because I thought her story was so compelling. I want to share excerpts from an article that she wrote. It was published in a publication called unheard.com, U-N-H-E-R-D.com. And it's called, very simply, Why I Am Now a Christian. And I thought, and basically she said, atheism cannot equip us for the civilization war. Well, there's more reasons to uh, you know, have faith than just that. But this is where... Ayan Hirsi Ali noted uh, 
feminist. Uh, uh, she's a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute. That's the same place where uh, Victor David Hansen is. She's the host of a podcast. It has a new book called Pray Immigration and Reform. Wait, see, it's called Pray Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. And Pray is P R E Y. But it's no doubt a pun on the fact that she has to do found faith in Christ. Here's how she writes about her conversion to Christianity. Quote, in 2002, I discovered a 1927 lecture by Bertrand Russell. It was entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. It did not cross my mind as I read it the one day, that one day, nearly a century after he delivered it on the South London branch of the National Secular Society, that I would be compelled to write an essay with precisely the opposite title. The year before, I had publicly condemned the terror attacks of the 19 men who had hijacked passenger jets and crashed them into the Twin Towers in New York. They had done it all in the name of my religion, Islam. I was a Muslim then, although not a practicing one. If I truly condemned their actions, then where did that leave me? The underlying principle that justified the attacks was religious, after all, the idea of jihad or holy war against the infidels. Was it possible for me, as for many members of the Muslim community, simply to distance myself from that action and its horrific results? At the time, there were many eminent leaders in the West, politicians, scholars, journalists, and other experts, who insisted that terrorists were motivated by reasons other than the ones that they and their leader, Osama bin Laden, had articulated so clearly. So Islam had an alibi. This excuse-making was not only a condescending toward Muslims, it also gave many Westerners a chance to retreat into denial. Blaming the errors of U.S. foreign policy was easier than contemplating the possibility that we were confronted with a religious war. We have seen a similar tendency in the past five weeks, as millions of people sympathetic to the plight of Gazans seek to rationalize the October 7th terrorist attacks as a justified response to the policies of the Israeli government. Uh, Ms. Ali continues, When I read Russell's lecture, I found my cognitive dissonance easing. It was a relief to adopt an attitude of skepticism toward religious doctrine, discard my faith in God, and declare that no such entity had existed. Best of all, I could reject the existence of hell and the danger of everlasting punishment. Russell's assertion that religion is based primarily on fear resonated with me. I had lived for too long in terror of all the gruesome punishments that awaited me. While I had abandoned all the rational reasons for believing in God, that irrational fear of hellfire still lingered. Russell's conclusion thus came as something of a relief. When I die, I shall rot, he wrote. To understand why I became an atheist 20 years ago, first you have to understand the kind of Muslim I had been. I was a teenager when the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated my community in Nairobi, Kenya in 1985. I don't think I even understood religious practice before the coming of the Brotherhood. I had endured the rituals, rituals of abulations, prayers, and fasting as tedious and pointless. The preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood changed this. They articulated a direction, the straight path, a purpose to work toward admission into Allah's paradise after death. A method, the Prophet's Instruction Manual of Do's and Don'ts, the Halal and the Haram. As the detailed supplement to the Quran, the Hadith spelled out how to put into practice the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, God and the devil. She continues, The Brotherhood preaches, preachers left nothing to the imagination. They gave us a choice. Strive to live by the Prophet's Manual and reap the glorious rewards into the hereafter. On this earth, meanwhile, the greatest achievement possible was to die as a martyr for the sake of Allah. The alternative, indulging the pleasures of the world, was to earn Allah's wrath and be condemned to eternal life in hellfire. Some of the quote-unquote worldly pleasures they were decrying included reading novels, listening to music, going to the cinema, and dancing, all of which I was ashamed to admit that I actually adored. She continues, the most striking quality of the Muslim Brotherhood was their ability to transform me and my fellow teenagers from passive believers into activists almost overnight. We didn't just say or pray for things, we did things. As girls, we donned the burqa and swore off Western fashion and makeup. The boys cultivated their facial hair to the greatest extent possible. They wore the white dress like twab worn in Arab countries or had their trousers shortened above the ankle bones. We operated in groups and volunteered our services in charity to the poor, the old, the disabled, and the weak. We urged fellow Muslims to pray and demanded that non-Muslims convert to Islam. During Islamic study sessions, we shared with the preacher in charge of the session our worries. For instance, what should we do about the friends we loved and felt loyal to, but refused to accept our dawah, which is the so-called invitation to the faith? 
In response, we were reminded repeatedly about the clarity of the Prophet's instructions. We were told in no uncertain terms that we could not be loyal to Allah and Muhammad while also entertaining friendships and loyalty toward the unbelievers. If they explicitly rejected our summons to Islam, we were to hate them and to curse them. Here, a special hatred was reserved for one subset of believers and that unbelievers, and that is the Jew. We cursed the Jews multiple times a day and expressed horror and disgust and anger at the litany of offenses they had allegedly committed. The Jew had betrayed our prophet. He had occupied the Holy Mosque in Jerusalem. He continued to spread corruption of the heart, mind, and soul. You could see why, to someone who had been through such a religious schooling, atheism seemed so appealing. Bertrand Russell offered a simple, zero-cost escape for an unbearable life of self-denial and harassment of other people. For him, there was no credible case for the existence of God. Religion, Russell argued, was rooted in fear. Fear is the basis of the whole thing, he wrote. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. As an atheist, I thought I would lose that fear. I also found an entirely new circle of friends as different from the preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood as one could imagine. The more I spent time with them, people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the more confident I felt that I had made the right choice. For the atheists were clever. There were also a great deal of them. So what had changed? Why do I, Ariane Ali, call myself a Christian now? It's a fascinating read that we'll put up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll get into some of the highlights of why she has given her faith in, uh, placed her faith now in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the special Thanksgiving Day edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, Ariane Ali is a f- fellow at the Stanford uh, Hoover Institute uh, alongside Victor Davis Hanson. She was a Muslim activist for, and a feminist for many, many years, uh, left Islam after the 9-11 attacks and became an atheist, but began to start writing out about religious liberty and the benefits of Christianity and the culture, even though she was doing so from an atheistic perspective. She's written an article that we've got up at thebottomlineshow.com now called Why I Am Now a Christian. And it's a fascinating read for anybody who's trying to understand those who come out of Islam or atheism into faith in Christ. And may we who are giving thanks to God for the many blessings that he has bestowed upon our nation today, may we also be mindful of the fact that the goal that we have here as Christians is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. It's not to condemn Islam so much as it is to uphold the cross of Christ. It's not to uh, thrash the atheist as it is to present, to live in such a way that we let our light so shine before others that they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So here's how Professor Ali continues writing her transformation of how she became a Christian. She says, so why am I now a Christian? Part of the reason is global. Western civilization is under threat from three different but related forces, the resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the forms of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia. Also, the rise of global Islamism, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West. And third, the viral spread of woke ideology, which is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. We endeavor to fend off these threats with modern secular tools like the military or economic or diplomatic or technological efforts to defeat, bribe, persuade, appease, or surveil. And yet, with every round of conflict, we find ourselves losing ground. We are either running out of money with our national debt in the tens of trillions of dollars, or we are losing our lead in the technological race with China. But we can't fight off these formidable forces unless we can answer the question, 
What is it that unites us? The response that God is dead seems insufficient. So too does the attempt to find solace in the, quote, the rules-based liberal international order. The only credible answer, I believe, she writes, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. That legacy consists, consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity from the nation state and the rule of law to the institutions of science, health, and learning. As Tom Holland has shown in his marvelous book called Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms of the market, of conscience, and of the press actually find their roots in Christianity. And so, Ali writes, I have come to realize that Bertrand Russell and my atheist friends failed to see the wood for the trees. The wood is the civilization built on the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's the story of the West, warts and all. Russell's critique of those contradictions in Christian doctrine is serious, but it also is too narrow in scope. For instance, he gave his lecture in a room full of former or at least doubting Christians in a Christian country. Think about how unique that was nearly a century ago and how rare it still is in non-Western civilizations. Could a Muslim philosopher stand before any audience in a Muslim country then or now and deliver a lecture with the title, Why I Am Not a Muslim? In fact, a book with that title does in fact exist, written by an ex-Muslim, but the author published it in America under a pseudonym. It would have been too dangerous to do otherwise. To me, she writes, this freedom of conscience and speech is perhaps the greatest benefit of Western civilization. It does not come naturally to man. It is the product of centuries of debate within Jewish and Christian communities. It was these debates that advanced science and reason, diminished cruelty, suppressed superstitions, and built institutions to order and protect life while guaranteeing freedom to as many people as possible. Unlike Islam, Christianity outgrew its dogmatic stage. It became increasingly clear that Christ's teaching implied not only a circumcised, circumscribed role for religion as something separate from politics, it also implied compassion for the sinner and humility for the believer. Yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? Russell and other activist atheists believe that with the rejection of God, we would enter an age of reason and intelligent humanism. But the so-called quote-unquote God hole, the void left by the retreat of the church, has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma. The result is a world where modern cults prey on the dislocated masses, offering them spurious reasons for being in action, mostly by engaging in virtue signaling theater on behalf of a victimized minority or our supposedly doomed planet. Boy, that is a great line. The line often attributed to G.K. Chesterton has turned into a prophecy. Quote, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. Then they became capable of believing in anything. In this nihilistic vacuum, the challenge before us becomes civilizational. We can't withstand Russia, China, or Iran if we can't explain to our populations why it matters that we do. We can't find wo fight woke ideology if we can't defend the civilization that is determined to destroy. And we can't counter Islamism with purely secular tools. To win the hearts and minds of Muslims here in the West, we have to offer them something more than videos on TikTok. Dr. Ali continues, the lesson I learned from my many years with the Muslim Brotherhood was the power of a unifying story embedded in the foundational texts of Islam to attract, engage, and mobilize the Muslim masses. Unless we offer something as meaningful, I fear the erosion of our civilization will continue. And fortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness because Christianity has it all. This is why I am no longer considering myself a Muslim apostate, but a lapsed atheist. Of course, I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity. I discover a little more at church every Sunday. But I have recognized in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the, challenge, the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief ever had to offer. Powerful words from Dr. Irian Ali, a uh, fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University uh, who has written 
just a really remarkable piece called Why I Am Now a Christian. And we've got it posted at thebottomlineshow.com. The thing I really appreciate about what she has written here is the fact that when I first came to follow her work, it was when she, as a former Muslim who was then identifying as an atheist and a feminist, was looking at the Western world and saying, you know, hey, the 9-11 attacks really got my attention as to why uh, radicalized Islam was not a solution, not the way she had been taught it was by the Muslim Brotherhood when she was a teenager. But it's been a long, slow climb for her to begin to realize, and some of these uh, points that we'll put up at thebottomlineshow.com, with regard to what the Christian way of life, if you will, the biblical worldview offers. And what it does offer is it does offer a sense of morality and a sense of purpose that no other way of life does. On the other side of this break, I want to talk about how that has been slowly eroding away here in the United States and what it means to us as Christians. How much of it should we fight to hold on to? And how much of it do you think we should let go and let God? We'll talk about that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to this Thanksgiving edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. You're going to hear a lot of me talking this hour, uh, hopefully not interrupting your family dinner. Of course, we are <laughs> we are podcasting at thebottomlineshow.com and Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. I know the National Crawford Roundtable is on Spotify. I don't, and to be honest with you, I don't know how it got there. I think somebody put it there for us. That was really cool. Uh, NCR comes up at the top of the hour today. Um, I'll be doing an analysis, balance, and clarity segment on Thanksgiving and its history coming up in just a few moments. But I wanted to offer some final thoughts here about the uh, uh, research fellow for uh, the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, Dr. Ayan Hirsi Ali, a former Muslim who went from Islam to atheism and now has published a post just in time for Thanksgiving at unheard.com uh, called Why I Am Now a Christian. And she looks at it and approaches the argument very rationally and pragmatically initially saying, atheism cannot equip us for the civilization war. But the more she writes about this, the more she writes about the fact that the meaning and sense of purpose that all of us are longing for is only found in Christianity. And I believe there's a simple reason she'll discover this as she uh, goes along her journey of faith. The reason she'll discover the purpose is because every human being is created with a purpose by a creator. Those, even in the BioLogos world, I mean, bless their hearts, people who are Christians who are trying to embrace climate change and evolution and billions of years and all those types of things, are, are, are one thing that they're missing is when you take God out of the equation and say, well, things are just going to evolve. You know, they're just going to happen and the universe is going to speak about this and science is going to speak about that. When you take God out of the equation, you take all the purpose and meaning out of life. And I know there are people who say, well, wait a minute, though. I mean, if every one of us is created by God in his image, why is there crime? Why is there corruption? You know, why do, does a good system like democracy or capitalism get corrupted and people start thinking of the system as bad? The system isn't bad. It's infected by sin. And the idea that there's any solution outside of a Christ-centered, God-based system just isn't going to work out. Dr. Ali understands this now. She was mobilized by the unifying forces of the Muslim Brotherhood when she was a teenager. She's from, uh, from Kenya and uh, basically said, this is how you know, the girls did this and we didn't want anything to do with the West and the boys did that. And we rallied around that. And she said, after 9-11, I really had to rethink the tenets of Islam because all that unifying and greater good and this, that, and the other thing, it just seemed ra kind of random and, and, uh, and bullying, if you will. So she became an atheist. There is no God. And I think that's a natural progression. Once you're part of a religious cult, you get out of that. The first thing you might think of is, okay, there is, I don't want any God. I don't want any supreme being in my life. But the more she's been studying this analytically, I love how God meets us where we are. She's a thinker. She's a researcher. She's a fellow at, uh, at, at the Hoover Foundation. God has been meeting her academically, intellectually, where she is, but also tugging at her heart as well. And so now she makes this declaration of faith. And I love the fact that God's pursuit of us is relentless. He will stop at nothing to seek and save the lost and to reclaim his own for himself. Friend, I, I pray that this Thanksgiving celebration for you would not get too caught in the weeds of the weirdness of the Macy's parade trying to be woke and transgender friendly. I pray that you would not let the issues of family dilemmas and problems and who's at your 
dinner table today and who's not get in the way. And ultimately, um, even just looking at our nation's history and saying, yeah, we're celebrating this history, but we do so warts and all, as Dr. Ali mentioned in her article, knowing that our American history is not perfect. But we know that God has made a covenant with the American people, not as nearly, I think, as strong or as important as the, the Israelis and the Jewish people. But God's hand of providence has been on this nation since its founding. And the question has not been, has God been faithful? The question has been, we've been faithful to him. Lord, continue to bless our steps and help us to be faithful to you, not to a political party or to a, a, a financial institution or to the world of academics, but to seek and save the lost, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, knowing that there are millions of people in our country today, just because we claim that this is a nation based on biblical principles, there are millions of people who are not seeing a biblical worldview, and they need to see it in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, an analysis, balance, and clarity segment on the history of Thanksgiving. It's coming your way next as The Bottom Line continues. Well, welcome to a special edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Yeah, it snuck up on us this year. You know, it's interesting. Every time Christmas rolls around, I know that there are a lot of people who <laughs> look at the Christmas holiday and they have the same reaction. What do you mean it's coming? Christmas is next week? What do you mean it's tomorrow? And someone like Dave Ramsey will always come back and say, well, you know, it's on the 25th of December every year. Well, that's the thing about Thanksgiving that makes it interesting. Like Easter that follows the lunar calendar and, you know, what, that's the first, uh, what's the first Sunday after the full moon or whatever, they, when they decide to do the, uh, the Easter celebration. Thanksgiving is the fourth Thursday in the month of Thanksgiving. And this year, since November 1st, was on uh, a Wednesday, that means November 2nd was a Thursday, the 2nd, the 9th, the 16th, and oh my goodness, happy Thanksgiving from all of our family to yours here on the Bottom Line Show. thought during the next half hour, what we would do is take a look at Thanksgiving in terms of its history, uh, the origins behind it, of course. There are some controversies as well, but you know, it's interesting to see how uh, the term Thanksgiving that we celebrate, you know, with the the different foods and things like that. It's a little different than maybe the first Thanksgiving was. And there have been days of Thanksgiving that were declared by presidents throughout history. It hasn't always been um, a holiday or a national holiday. And yeah, of course, it comes with a little bit of, uh, well, not turmoil, but it definitely comes with um, uh, some consternation for some people who don't believe it. Here's the official, uh, well, Heritage Foundation put out a piece, and we'll put this up at thebottomlineshow.com that talks about oh, the American Heritage Education Foundation, talks about the history of Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving Day in America. The first Thanksgiving, of course, the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s had given rise to a, a pretty devout group of Christians in England. They would call themselves the Puritans. They wanted to live pure in heart. They, they wanted to live a, uh, a, a you know, the, the kind of Christian life that they believe God wanted us to read about in scripture. And it's interesting because when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church at Wittenberg door back in 1517, there were some Christians that said, hallelujah, you know, the Catholic church is doing everything in Latin. We don't have access to direct access to God like we believe scripture tells us. You know, people were illiterate. They, they, the only ones who had copies of scripture were the, the priesthood. You know, it was a tough time. There were some things I'm sure that most Catholics would agree. Okay, the Reformation did bring up some points where we needed to make some changes. The question, though, is who implements the changes? You know, who, who kind of gets the, who's the catalyst for that? And in the Catholic Church, capital C Church, they'd say, well, it's, it's certainly not a guy like you know, a seminary student like Martin Luther. But there were some people in England who were pretty devout. And by the 1600s, they were wanting this kind of reform for the Church of England. And they weren't getting it. I mean, the church gave them a couple of concessions. But these uh, Puritans, if you will, uh, didn't think it went far enough. And so they really wanted to purify the church from within. They wanted to get rid of corruption in doctrine and worship. And so there was a remnant of this group that said, uh, we thought that the church is too corrupt to be restored. And so the separatists decided that they wanted to, uh, uh, you know, basically set up their own shop. Now, remember, unlike America, where we have religious liberty, there is no official uh, church of America. There was, is, and will always be a Church of England. And so if you call yourself Christian and 
England called itself a Christian nation, which more on that later. There, there was a bit of confusion, I think, among the Englanders as to what made them a Christian nation. But there were Puritans who actually were, became known as separatists. And they didn't want to conform to that official state church thing. Um, then their movement was outlawed and then they were persecuted, treated like criminals. So they were among those who got on the Mayflower in 1620 and came across to the United States. Now, footnote before we go any further. It, it would be really irresponsible of us as Christians to say that's where the story begins. I, I've talked to many, too many people who grew up in an America where they look at that part of the story and say, that's where it began. You know, there, there were Puritans who came across, and they were pilgrims, and they set up shop, and they made nice with the Indians, and everything was fine. It was a very, very difficult lesson for the Puritans who came over, the separatists, to come and try to set up shop in a land where they definitely were strangers. But there had been Spanish settlers before that. There had been French explorers before that. I mean, hell, <laughs> Louisiana Purchase and all that stuff. Uh, you know, and, and the, look at all the French influence in North America and Canada. But what's interesting about this, this is as we, um, you know, um, Americans really need to take stock of our history. It doesn't mean this is the problem with like critical race theory, 1619 project, this, that, the other thing. Everything in life has become so polarized. You know, it's a this or that. You choose up or down, yes or no, left or right. And life is extremely nuanced. You know, think about your relationship with the Lord. Before you became a child of God, you were a sinner who was condemned to hell because you were born sinful in a sinful fallen world and you couldn't free yourself from your sin. The God of the universe is so vast that our sins count so heavily against us toward him, we could never pay the fee. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, begotten, not made, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, we say in the uh, Nicene Creed. And it's true. Want to watch my skin curl? <laughs> say, God's one and only son. I have a son, one and only son, my son Jacob, 29 years old last month, doing great things, kind of looks a little bit like his dad, though not quite as... Uh, uh, COVID pack on the weight heavy, but nonetheless, he is my only son. And I have a bonus son. There are other kids in my world. I got sons-in-law who I, they call me dad, um, you know, and I love that, especially when I think about that because both my, um, my daughters, Emily and Kaylee, are married to guys who uh, lost their dads uh, either through divorce or death when they were rel relatively young. So I'm dad to them. But if you look at my son, Jake, you would not say he's begotten of me because he's got a lot of his mother in him. He's got a lot of his grandparents in him. But Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son. He is the exact replica of that. I, I can't stress this enough because when we talk about Thanksgiving and how grateful we are to God, there's talk, of course, that the first Thanksgiving happened in 1621 after the pilgrims came in 1620. Of course, there are some reports that Thanksgiving celebrations happened at 1619. But the idea was the separatists came to the U.S., settled in what we call New England, and came across on the Mayflower, all that type of stuff. And their reason for coming to America was religious freedom. Now, the people who got here before them, the French, the Spanish, etc., theirs was not religious freedom. It was divide and conquer. But the Puritans really envisioned a place where people could believe in God, they could worship peacefully, that they wouldn't be harassed or persecuted. Now, enjoy the irony of that for just a moment. The Puritans wanted freedom in America to set up their own church. They wanted to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who was here ahead of them? We call them Native Americans for a reason, because they were here before us. I don't want to say they're here first. I mean, there's still a lot of question, I think, left to be answered as to, did people just start showing up in North America around 1,000 or 1,100? How did it go? When the pilgrims did arrive, they faced some really tough difficulties. I mean, the, nat the, the natural landscape was brutal. They didn't have any food. They didn't have any clothing, supplies. They didn't have any shelter. They got there in winter and it was awful. Harsh climate, poor soil, hunting and farming were very difficult. <coughs> Many of the pilgrims suffered from starvation. Some of them had sickness. Half of them died the first year they were there. But I want to, 
I have to take issue with the next line of description from the American Heritage Education Foundation. Because the story goes, then during this difficult time, however, the pilgrims became friends with some friendly Native Americans who showed them how to plant corn. Brothers and sisters, may I submit to you that they were friendly only because they didn't kill them. The Indian tribe, we've got this view that Native Americans referred to as Indians because apparently they came from India. (laughs) That it was all peace and joy and love and happiness and that sort of thing. Without taking into consideration the fact that there was a savagery among the different tribes, among the different people group, there was no reason to assume that these folks were all getting along with one and that anybody who looked like the quote-unquote pale face coming over from England was going to be welcomed in with open arms. In the... So by they planted, they learned how to plant corn and other crops, and the following autumn, there was a plentiful harvest. And again, we look at the seasons differently here in the States, don't we? We like the warm seasons. That's when everyone has a good time, goes on vacation, parties, et cetera, et cetera. In winter, we're doing all sorts of activities that we're not supposed to be doing on the shortest days of the year. Think about it. Winter is a time of when the land lies dormant. Spring is when you plant. Summer is when it grows. Fall is when you reap the harvest. And winter, you chill out again. The pilgrims in 1621 held three days of thanksgiving to God for his provision and his blessings. They, they celebrated with the feast and invited their Native American friends to join them in the celebration. I'm only smiling because I'm sure it wasn't quite that sanitized. If the Native Americans and the English sat down and had a meal together, it may have just been out of sheer exhaustion. You got any food? I got some food. You want to sit down? Okay, let's have a conversation. Edward Winslow described the event this way in his Journal of the Pilgrims. Quote, God be praised. We had a good increase of Indian corn and good barley. Our harvest being brought in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might in special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. And although it is not always so plentiful as it was this time with us, by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. The pilgrims were able to overcome famine by cooperating with the Native Americans and the Plymouth colony survived. During the American Revolution, things really got interesting because the U.S. declared independence from Britain, and so now you had the Continental Congress, and they issued a Thanksgiving proclamation every year from 1777 to 1784. Why? To thank God for his continued assistance and mercy of this new nation. After the revolution ended, Congress asked First President George Washington to recommend to the people of the U.S., quote, a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. So what did that first proclamation look like? Why Did it take another 70 years before it became a national holiday? We'll get into those issues of regarding Thanksgiving and more coming up next as the bottom line continues. Been hurt in an accident and you're wondering if you should call Stephanie Cover of Cover Law. You must. That's why insurance exists to cover accidents. So you should use it. Stephanie worked in the insurance industry for over 20 years and she knows their system, how to talk to adjusters, how they think, and how to get back from them all that you've lost. That could be wages, time, property, or anything else that the accident has taken from you. Every minute you wait hurts your chance to be made whole again, and Stephanie knows that the opposing insurance company is building a case against you, so time is a factor. Stephanie cares about the truth. She builds your case on a rock-solid foundation of honesty. She will give you a clear understanding of what to expect during the process, And Stephanie will ensure that the truth comes to light. If you or someone you know has been in an accident and you're not sure if you need an attorney, reach out to Stephanie Cover now at kbrightradio.com slash C-O-V-E-R. Welcome back to this Thanksgiving edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're taking a look at the history of Thanksgiving, and I'm offering a few editorial comments as well because 
in all honesty, brothers and sisters, we can have this cognitive dissonance. It's not been lollipops and raindrops all the way through in the United States. Um, the idea that a group of English settlers were able to come in and establish a nation is pretty remarkable. Um, did they do it on the backs of slaves and Native Americans? Well, I mean, you can't argue that fact. The question, though, is do we as Americans then give thanks for the fact that it's been a holiday since 1789, that it became a national holiday in 1863, or is there something more to it? Because I believe that the original pilgrim reason for having Thanksgiving, regardless of what you think about the foundation of the country, I think their reason is solid. November 19, or excuse me, November 1789, it would really have been something if George Washington was still alive in 1989. He issued the first presidential Thanksgiving proclamation in the nation so that people might devote themselves to thank God and ask for forgiveness of sins. Now listen to that for just a moment. I'm going to read the proclamation. But listen to the fact you have the president of the United States saying, we want to thank God for his provision and ask for the forgiveness of sins. What do you think those sins might entail? I mean, there were the personal sins uh, of you know people committed against each other. There were the sins of omission, things we didn't do uh, when we should have, and the sins of commission as well. But then understand, too, where they were living. I don't think we spot, spotlight this enough. The reality that there were some people there who were saying, hey, we were here first, and there was invariably bloodshed and <laughs> stabs and jabs and things like that. And you have to wonder how much of that, you, we, we, we always celebrate the cooperation, the cooperative spirit of the pilgrims and Native Americans, but how often do we take into consideration that there were also some who just said, I'm tired of arguing with you, bang, you know, and there, there goes the gunfire. Here's George Washington's proclamation where he encouraged people to devote themselves to thank God and ask for forgiveness of sins. Quote, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Let's stop there for a second. George Washington got it. George Washington understood that every nation that was going to succeed would only succeed by the providence of Almighty God. That's how his, his proclamation started out. He continued to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. I, President Washington, do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all of the good that was, that is, or that will be. That we may all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks, and also that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions. Woe. Now, if you fall into the camp of someone who says, Well, I don't like Thanksgiving because I think the Native Americans got a bum deal, listen to those words again from, Dr., uh, from President George Washington. He may have earned a doctorate as well. May we all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks, and also that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions. Did you hear that? When he called for a national day of prayer, he called for what he called a day of humiliation and prayer. Not that you go out and humiliate other people, but rather that you approach the Lord with a humble heart. During the Civil War, Smack dab in the center of it, 1863, <clears throat> President Abraham Lincoln did something rather radical. He made Thanksgiving a national annual holiday. Listen to this portion of the Thanksgiving proclamation where he invited the citizens of the United States to thank God and to praise him, praise God, and to pray for our nation. Quote, I invite my fellow citizens in every part of these United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our bene beneficent, there we go again, Father, who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that they also fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. It's amazing to think of the people who might think of Thanksgiving as the day the Detroit Lions lose to somebody. Of course, not this year. They're having a great season. I'm sure Bob Duco's thrilled about that. But moving beyond that, though, 
Two prayers, two men, two distinctly different parts of American history. First, we're fighting off the British in Revolutionary War times in George Washington world. And then we're fighting each other as a nation in 1863. And Abraham Lincoln says, I invite my fellow citizens all across these United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that they also fervently implore the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation, to restore it as soon as it may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. In other words, heal our land. We, your people, God, are turning away from our sin turning from our wicked ways and seeking your face. Second Chronicles 7:14. That's right there in Abraham Lincoln's Thanksgiving proclamation in 1863. Um, historically, this is something that is a, an opportunity for us to pray over and to pray about. On the other side of this break, I want to do this. I want to pray for our nation, encourage you to join me in prayer and think of where we are as a country, where we are as a society and where we are as a citizenry. And then ways that we can ask God to literally, as George Washington would say, that we could beseech him on behalf of his almighty provision. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, you give a gift of $28 that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a $15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. Welcome back to this Thanksgiving edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh and so grateful that you have tuned in to have this conversation with us. We're talking about the history of Thanksgiving from the Puritans, the Pilgrims, the Separatists, uh, landing in New England in 1620 and having the first, they actually had three days of Thanksgiving back in 1621 and they were just grateful to God for the provisions. They, we focus so much on the story of the fact that they made, you know, some connections with Pilgrims not realizing, of course, that if we don't tell the whole story, the whole story is there were still Europeans cruising around trying to kill the Native Americans and Native Americans trying to kill the Europeans. And it, it was kind of a bloody time. It was a freezing time. The pilgrims lost half of their number to freezing cold and lack of food and illness and things of that nature. So they had a lot to be grateful for, that they were still alive, <laughs> let alone having a Thanksgiving feast. Fast forward to 17, or excuse me, 1863, and President Lincoln making Thanksgiving a national annual holiday. But you know, it's really a time for we, the people of the U.S., to celebrate and to pray and to consider all the things that God has done for us, things that we take for granted. So let's do that right now. Let's come before the throne. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being a merciful God. Thank you for this nation that you have provided for us to live in, for us to dwell for such a time as this. Lord, we know there are people who are hurting right now, there are people who are struggling. We also know there are people who are just angry with each other. They're fighting. They're, they're, they're squabbling. They're bickering. And some of those people are doing that bickering at us in our direction. Lord, please hear when I say that on behalf of all of your children here who are experiencing even the slightest bit of religious persecution, thank you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to not take your goodness for granted. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to put our trust in the blessor and more than the blessing. 
Lord, we know that there's pain all over the world and we know that there's crisis and conflict and we realize that we could see these in two different compartments. Compartment number one, of course, how horrible it is to see people suffer, to potentially lose their lives because of a lack of abundance or even just a lack of necessity, the necessary means of food and shelter. At the same time, Father, we also see the birth pangs. We see the growing pains that are coming, uh, indicating that your return is imminent. So, Father God, as we occupy until you return, help us to occupy well. Help us to be worthy of the walk to which you have called us. For those of us who uh, encounter someone on the street, in the shopping mall, wherever we do, especially today and tomorrow being the kind of a big holiday shopping time, Father, help us to show the light of Christ in everything that we do. Help us to live humbly and to walk justly and to love mercy and to, and to just be the kind of people you're calling us to be. Father, we know this world isn't perfect. It never will be. And I pray, Father, we all repent on behalf of every one of us who's ever spent so much time focusing on trying to make this a quote-unquote perfect place to live without taking into consideration that we live in a pretty special place, but ultimately the perfect place to be is with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Father, on this day, we do give thanksgiving. We, we share our thanksgiving with you and with those with whom we are celebrating today. We think about those who are no longer with us. I'm always reminded on Thanksgiving Day of my grandmother, my, my grandma Mabel, who was such a huge spiritual influence in my life. And remembering the first year, 1983, that I was in the broadcasting world and uh, I was working the overnight shift up in San Luis Obispo, California, and we agreed that I would stay in San Luis Obispo because I usually came home every weekend. And uh, I would stay up in San Luis and just do uh, Thanksgiving dinner with friends there and come down on the weekend. We'd have a later Thanksgiving dinner. And talking to my grandma on the phone, and she said, oh, I miss you. It's just not right that you're not here. And... 11 months later, she was home with you, and that would have been the last opportunity for us to have a Thanksgiving meal in her home. I carry that memory with me, Father, because I know how important it is for us to be together as the family, our blood relatives, but also the family of God. And Father, I pray, I pray, I pray for unity in the body of Christ, that we as Christians would set aside our differences because chances are they, they aren't as important as the things that draw us together. Help us to be bound together in Christian love. You command it of us, but Father, you also graciously extend the hand and show us how to do it. So Father, please compel us this Thanksgiving to keep rejoicing you uh, to, in your direction for the provisions you've provided for us, but also keep extending the hand out to our brothers and sisters in Christ and, um, and knowing that one day we will be having the ultimate Thanksgiving feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, in heaven with you and your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in the precious and powerful name of our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. On behalf of uh, my producer, Tamara Comito, and uh, for Eleanor and everyone here at uh, the station to, and, and on behalf of everybody who runs things behind the scenes to make this all happen, have a blessed and wonderful remainder of your Thanksgiving day. And join us again tomorrow for a special Day after Thanksgiving, a day edition of The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. God bless you.